you tuning in this week have a very dope and unique interesting guest on here today make sure you check out last week's episode react before the facts i think society we're very emotionally based sometimes and we jump to conclusions without actually looking at things more objectively and looking at the facts today's episode again like i mentioned have a very dope guest on here very profound uh, we're gonna talk about a lot of in-depth topics today a lot of detailed things um, so i'm very excited it's very unique, very, very, very hip, very dope. So without further ado, well, let's get into it. Make sure you stay tuned, stay hip, stay connected. All right, and we are back. As I said, we have a very special guest today. Look forward for a very dope and unique conversation. Have the man, myth, and legend. You may know him as Braxton. You may know him as Tom DeBall. A lot of different names. Go ahead, man. Just introduce yourself. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is uh, Braxton. All right, man. We appreciate you coming on the show and everything today. Um, pleasure, pleasure. So, why don't you give the the people a little background about yourself? Sure. So, um, I was actually very active on Twitter about a year and a half to two years ago, and I went on a hiatus um, after I got my ass kicked off Twitter. Um, and uh, I, what I wanted to do, you know, in addition to some family things that were going on, I wanted to tend to those things, obviously, but just enjoy life without Twitter, without, you know, a lot of social media engagement. Um, and along the way, I was able to reignite a lot of passions that I had had before um, that I may have put to the wayside because, you know, I got gratification in another way, you know, through retweets or whatever have you. Um, and so because of that, I wanted to come back to social media engagement really just to you know share with the people um, a lot of the passions that I've been working on a lot of the skills that I've been honing and, and just new pursuits you know I grew a lot over the last two years um, a lot of experience good and bad um, and I mean that in the most extreme sense you know extreme euphoria and extreme trauma so uh, you know a lot of that goes into what I do now which is um, 
music. Music. I've been a, a writer my whole life, um, and now I'm pursuing uh, my passion in music. Um, my latest project is uh, Power of Shalem. It's an EP, rap EP, and uh, in it I'm talking about a couple of things that I'm sure we're going to get into much deeper detail throughout the course of the conversation. All right, cool, dope. So what's your new uh, what's your EP? And just for yourself, you know, in, in life, all about experiences and growing as people and takes us to different steps in our life at different period of times. So with this EP, what would you describe? What was your inspiration for? What's kind of the subject matter? What do you have kind of going with it? Um, well, I think it was coming to, I think it had probably hit me um, when I was on Twitter. When I saw that people really were lacking a lot of the things that I was saying, I had to look at how often I was tweeting these things. I mean, I was tweeting like, it seemed like once every two minutes. And it's like, you know, if something is on your heart to the point where you can express it prolifically or, you know, so often and so frequently, um, given that I had the ability to, to rhyme, it just didn't make sense for me to be using things in the form of tweets that could be in the form of bars. Mm. And putting that, mixing that with music, it just made all the sense in the world to me. But I'd never really gotten around to it. Um, you know, I'd been writing since I was around four years old. I think that was the first poem I ever wrote. It was a poem to my, my mother, right? And um, she claims that she still has that poem. I don't know how true that is. But, I mean, I've been writing my whole life, and, and I've never been, well, I had never been told that I wasn't good at it. So it just made sense to see. Um, what I sound like over a track, you know, so I always tell people, you know, I've been rapping my whole life, you know, backseat freestyles and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, with your boys and everything, but I'd never really been an MC before. Okay. So this is my first project as an MC. Okay. And and how was that transition going from, you know, like you said, just, you know, writing your whole life or rapping with your friends to actually putting it into a, a you know, a constructed, you know, constructed manner into an actual, you know, EP, an actual project? be perfectly honest, and I say this with all humility, it was easy as hell. Um, it felt extremely natural. Um, I felt, and here's the thing, here's the funny thing, you're actually the first person other than um, the people I created this album with, and you know, my closest circle, they're the first person to know this, right? Um, I wrote these songs, and we recorded the entire EP, it's five songs. We recorded all five songs in shoe closets. Um, just like some real, you know, hustle and flow kind of thing. We didn't go into the studio one time. Um, you know, my, my cousin, who is, uh, you know, Tony Artist, if you listen to the last song, Supreme, my last volume one, he's the first verse on that. He's also the producer that made the second song in the album, which is Manifesto, as well as the first song, which is Echelon. He created the beats for both of those tracks. And, uh, he's also my engineer. And, um, at the time, we were in a little bit of a pickle, and uh, his business model was one wherein he brings the studio to the artist, right? So he'll set up shop right at your house. Um, and at the time, uh, I didn't, well, after time, Tone likes to eat a smoker, so I don't like to have smoke in my house. So we would go to other people's houses, and, uh, you know, I guess my homeboy or whatever, like, yo, man, let's use your crib right quick, all right, back, you know, or if it's a girl that, you know, <laughs> I guess she might like me or Tone. We'd be like, hey, you know, can we use it? You know, that kind of thing. And he's like, oh, of course. And so we just record this thing right in their shoe closet or whatever, and they, you know, coat closet and everything and soundproof it. 
and I just go in there and I, you know, try to spit some fire, man. I, I tried, you know, and, and that was, it worked out well for us. It makes for a hell of a story. Uh, we laugh about it. That's kind of dope. Cause it's a real kind of almost a, a, a grassroot uh, journey to that, you know, and it's and it kind of shows you as well. And it's kind of life how, you know, at times we may have different access to different resources and we may not always have the same, uh, you know, same equipment or the same necessarily, you know, access to certain things. But however, it can show you, though, when you put your mind to something, you have a, a plan in place. You can make anything happen still. And uh, yeah. it was just it's so crazy because. You know, this EP is only five songs long, you know, and it, we, I remember, you know, driving around Trenton with all this expensive-ass equipment, and you know how Trenton is. Trenton is not a nice place to live or to be, you know what I mean? So we driving around with thousands of dollars worth of equipment in the trunk, back and forth between this hood and that hood, going into this girl's house, and she got too many dudes out on her porch, seven six. And so it was an experience in and of itself. Um, and so, but what that taught me, you know, especially my first time, you know, really recording, uh, what it taught me was, listen, you need to make the best of every session. Um, and I think a lot of the lessons that I may have learned, you know, in my day job, um, they really helped me to, to remain disciplined and to remain focused and try to be as time efficient as possible. You know, so it's like, you know, hey, Tone, listen, um, this track that I got, I got this instrumental, you know, uh, I need you to lengthen each verse before the hook, you know, from 16 bars to 24 bars and, you know, 24 bars each verse. And, I, you know, after that, I need you to, you know, stretch out the hook a little bit. So it's like, I'm going to let you know exactly what we need to do. I got all the verses. I got the cadence down. Let's try to make this as fast as possible. Let's try to get in, get out. We can be productive, you know, and that, that's from a mental standpoint. That's where a lot of it came came to play. Okay, dope. So, for yourself as an artist, um, is there any other artists out there that you have some type of inspiration from? Is there anyone else that you might want to compare yourself to for your sound, or are you just unique within yourself, or how's that? Well, um, one thing about me is. When it comes to rappers that I look up to, I don't even like to put myself in the same sentence as it, to be honest with you. Mm. So, I mean, rappers that I look up to, obviously, you know, Nas, um, Jay-Z, obviously, I'm a big Feral Munch, Black Thought, Raz Cass, um, I mean, what, Common, Talib Kweli, well, not really Talib Kweli, <laughs> Most Deaf, yeah, that, there's no offense to him, but I I'm really not my guy, but... <laughs> Um, the early Kanye, you know, because he really bust a lane wide open for, you know, rappers that, you know, ain't selling crap. You know, mm -hmm. he really did. You know, obviously the Tupacs, um, those are people that I look up to. Those are people that, you know, I'm looking to impress those elders. I'm not looking to impress the little pumps or the whoever's of the whatever world, you know. And no disrespect to them, but that's just not my thing. I'm a... I'm a person that appreciates lyrics, I appreciate substance, so I would never compare myself to them. I'll let somebody else do that, and I've heard those comparisons, um, but I don't. I, I try to walk in a posture of humility and never put myself above or next to them. Yeah, I think I let somebody else do that. Right, and, and I think it's dope, especially kind of the artist you name, because there's a lot of people who I've always liked to uh, uh, listen to myself, because you know, with, with rap, you know, it's, it's rhythm and poetry. You know, and it, it, it's such a lost art, and we 
the lyricism and stuff, how, you know, for early on, that was, that's all rap was, of actually, you know, having yeah. substance and having bars and depth and, and metaphors and similes and, and putting things together and telling a story. And, uh, you know, especially like nowadays, with our rap, we seem to, you know, we lost a lot of substance. It seems nowadays all you need is, you know, a khaki hook, a hard beat, and you can say whatever, and it goes, you know, sells yeah. millions and stuff like that. So, how do you feel um, in today's music industry? How do you how do you feel is shifting? Do you think these these mumble rappers or these upcoming rappers? You think this is uh, the new wave, or this is a trend that's coming through here again, or do you think that that real, you know, kind of um, lyricist stuff can come back? That's a good question. And first, let me just say, I mean, I don't know how I forgot this guy. He's probably one of the biggest inspirations of me being, you know, a writer, you know, from the age of 16 to now, Lupe Fiasco. Oh. I know he's in some hot water because of the things he said the other day. But, Lupe you know, on that aside, Lupe is, like, to me, he's the epitome of, like, technical lyricism. He's the greatest lyricist of um, all time, in my opinion. In my opinion, yes. You know, I mean, if you listen to a track like Murals, oh my you know what I mean? It's like, that's... <laughs> Dots and lines, right? And that's just from Tetsuo and you. You know right. what I mean? So, to me, he's like, you know, that's he's what you call a top-tier lyricist. Yep. It doesn't matter what you think about his politics or, you know, he might tweet something goofy or whatever, but it's like, okay, you say whatever you want. But when it comes to the pen, I'm sorry, you oh, got yeah. it. But to answer your question, Kat, um, which, uh, let me just rephrase it back to, you know, where do I think, or what do I think about the mumble rap in the place that I have in hip-hop? Right. Um, well... Um, I'm not as much I'm, I will, I'm what I consider myself a hip-hop purist but at the same time maybe I'm a little conflicted because while I consider myself a hip-hop purist I also try to be real about it you know or be realistic about it um, just in that maybe I don't think lyricism will ever die I don't think that will ever happen um, I don't think it will ever happen uh, but I do think that rap or what we associate with black music um, well yeah okay this is a better way to put it right I think what we associate with as black music um, is expanding at one time it was what the blues jazz rhythm and blues funk um, and uh, uh, rap right mm -hmm. um, and hip hop is not even considered just rap right because you have the MC DJ um, B-boy and graffiti art right so that's hip hop the four elements but as far as rap is concerned, rap is considered one of those, you know, black identifiers. But I think now it's starting to expand a little bit more, where you'll have, you know, no offense, but kind of like weirdos, like Lil Nas X, you know, that can come out with Old Town Road. I think the dumbest shit in the world, but when I first heard it, I couldn't help but laugh. Right. And next thing you know, to be honest with you, after three times hearing it, I was singing, right? right. <laughs> so I don't like that type of music, to be honest with you. I really don't. But at the same time, I think that uh, our perception of what is black music is expanding. And they might take from rap, they might have a rapping aspect in it, but I don't consider that hip-hop, technically. I really don't. You know, just the same as I don't consider, you know, just because... Um, a white person is singing, I don't consider that R&B, you know? Singing takes, uh, singing, you hear singing across so many different genres, from opera to country to R&B to rock music to, to all these different styles, right? You hear singing across, and the same thing with rap. Rap is being implemented in different types of music. Um, but I don't necessarily, I don't know if I would necessarily call it hip-hop. Right. 
And, and I think it's a very interesting point you make. And when you look at music nowadays, right, you look at the veterans and OGs who are still actively in the game, right? A lot of them, you look at from Jay-Z, the Nas, the Jadakiss, or Eminem, or Black Thought, um, you know, or, you know, so many more people who still actively here who've been doing this for like 20 plus years, right? And one thing about them is that they are they have bars, they have lyrics, stuff like that. They may dabble into, you know, some other aspects and everything, but for the most part, they can always rely back on those bars, which is why they can stay relevant and active for 20 plus years Absolutely. because they got bars. That's not going to go, you can't take that away. <laughs> um, Absolutely. You know what's crazy because there's a, um, you know, on the TL, and I forgot to mention, right, from a technical standpoint, Eminem, yes, 100%. Right. I don't mind saying that, right? It's like, and I said this the other day because now, you know, Nick Cannon, he dropped this disc against Eminem. And it got to be, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's one of the worst discs I've ever heard in my life, <laughs> right? But I think Nick Cannon knows that. He knows you can't touch Eminem on the mic, right? right. Marshall, you can say what you want, but it's like, I mean, you, you know, you play ball, right? So I said this the other day. I said, listen, at some point you're going to have to admit that as goofy looking as Larry Bird looks, unathletic and all that shit, the white boy can play ball. Right. You know what I'm saying? In the same way, it's like M can rap. So I'm glad we brought that up. But what you were saying about, you know, how lyricism, what I think is so interesting is been these guys have been 20 plus years in the game, but you notice, if anything, their lyrical ability has gotten better. Mm-hmm. And why is that? I think a lot of times people liken rapping because it's considered a black male, you know, dominated whatever, which it is, right? right. And, you know, like basketball or athletics, mm. right? So it's like the older you get, eventually you're going to slow down. No, not really. Mm. Not if you work at it. Because technically, if you get older, you should be getting smarter and wiser. You should have a more uh, a more substantive and conscientious perspective on a lot of things, on the world. You should have a lot more reflection on who you were when you were younger. And that should, if anything, give you more to rap about. But even still, if you still work on the craft and you know, the, the, the wordsmithing and the craftsmanship of lyricism. From a technical standpoint, I don't really think that I don't think that well should ever run dry. So right. I think, to your point, it's so important that we look ahead or look up at these, what I call or what Black Thought calls the elder statesmen, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, I got both of his EPs, you know, that he dropped in the last two years, and I'm studying his craft. I'm like, how does he piece these words together? How does he use these syllables? How does he you know, switch the flow, which he doesn't do too often, to be honest, like thought. But right. you get what I'm going. Right, right, right. And and I think it's very important. I think a lot of it is to the lyrics. And like you said, it's kind of like with, it's like wine. You know, you age with, age with grace and everything, especially these rappers, because, you know, you even listen to Jay-Z and stuff like that, just his progression and stuff and everything, as he's grown as an individual, as a man, as, as a business person, entrepreneur, his flexes come even different now. You know what I'm saying? Like, the uh, things you talk about come different. I mean, just that whole avenue and it's kind of like you know if you're a rapper and all you talk about the whole time was just you know turn up popping pills lean molly women drugs after a while it's like bro you're 43 you still doing this <laughs> it's like yeah you know i mean at some point you, that that doesn't have longevity that certain brand it lasts for a little bit but if you're really going to get better over time like that's <laughs> that has to translate yeah, absolutely it's crazy you mention that because i was just thinking about this um the other day or actually by that i mean this morning um, so I think about the stance that I take, right? So when you're building a brand, right, you have to make sure it's not just, you don't want to make sure it's too sensational or it's too, it's too extremist or it's too hard line because at the end of the day, that's what people will attach to you. And then when it comes time to actually 
be a mature rapper that has a mature perspective on life, people are going to say you went soft, or people are going to say, you know, you're corny, or you lost it, or, you know, you washed, or something like that. I think about that in terms of, like, so from a technical standpoint, I think Eminem's uh, technique is flawless, right? People make fun of him because of the way he uses syllables, and, you know, people got their jokes and everything. Right, miracle, so miracle, spiritual, a, you know, all that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a bunch of cats, because they, they were jamming to his stuff back in 2003. That's a cat cat, but right. anyway, it's like, <laughs> you take a look at the, but how did he start out, right? The Slim Shady LP, the Marshall Mathers LP, the Eminem show, he's talking about uh, slitting his wife's wrist and how much he hates his mother. Right. I mean, and he was actually pretty skilled at putting his anger into those lyrics and still maintaining a high level of technical prowess into his lyrics. Right. But now you see him today, he's 47 years old, and his last album, well, not Kamikaze, but in the album prior to that, um, he was, what was it called? The Marshall uh, Mountain LP? Uh, right. What's that? Was it the Marshall Mountain, the, the L- no, Marshall no, Mountain LP came out in 2016. Okay. This one that last came out was something about America or something like that. Mm. The, the shit was trash. It's the reason why he made Kamikaze. Right. Because okay. he got so much negative reception. And in that one, he apologized to his mother. In the Marshall Mathers LP 2, he apologized to Kim. Hmm. Well, no, no, no. He apologized to Kim in the last one, and then apologized to his mother in Marshall Mathers LP, LP 2. Okay. Right? So, people think he's getting corny. They think he's lost steps. So, that's why you want to, I think, you can start off so wild and so trolling and so whatever, but just know if you want to have a long career, people are going to, they're going to remember you for the impact you make right now. So, I'd rather be not as hardline. I'd rather just be have a mature brand right now so that when I'm 40 years old it won't catch anybody by surprise right. they won't be like yo man why you not talking that shit you used to talk back in the day blah mm. blah blah it's like motherfuckers I'm not that person anymore <laughs> right, right, right. you know it's like so I'd rather just you know rap about what I believe to be my higher self now mm. you know okay so as we touched on especially with rap and music entertainment we touched on how it's you know primarily a black male thing and just in general within culture right now especially black american culture um you know there's so much division there's so many things that I constantly seem to come up um and a lot of things people focus on so for yourself what do you feel that maybe some of the biggest issues or problems maybe facing the black community in today's society well uh it's a lot of those um <laughs> i'd say one of them would be um I don't want to say a lack of unity. I don't really know if that's the first thing or the top thing I would say. No particular, no particular right order, now. just in general, no particular order or well, metric. I say the unity could be much better. Um, I think that there's an increasing divide, um, at least on, and social media is important, right? Social media is important because there are people that actually take Twitter seriously, mm-hmm. right? So when they see these, you know, pseudo-intellectual or pseudo-academic um, discussions um, or assertions about, you know, characterizations of black men or characterizations of black women and how that relates to each other when they're trying to interact, they actually take that to heart and they try to um, implement in their everyday interactions with other black people. It, it influences their paradigm um, because not everybody has the, and I feel bad saying this, but the truth is not everybody has the steadiness of mind to be able to decipher, okay, this is a bunch of sensationalism, this is clearly a ploy by non-black powers to keep us separate. Not everybody has that soundness of mind or that steadiness of mind to know that. So I think um, unity is a big thing. 
obviously I think that financial literacy is a huge deal. Um, I mean, I was just reading today. Um, I was reading today on how, um, if I'm not mistaken, the richest 10%. Uh, they own 84% of the stock market. Mm. And one of the biggest reasons, if you take a look, and I looked at this as well, since Trump has been in office, I think the stock market has gone up 32% or something like that, mm-hmm. um, which obviously is great because investors see a private sector guy and they're like, oh, shit, all right, we need to buy, buy, buy. Right. But what they were saying later on in the, or earlier in the article was that a lot of the rich, what they did at a time when the middle class did the exact opposite was, you know, around 2001 and 2008, they actually bought, whereas a lot of middle class, and you remember 2001. 2001 dot com bubble, 2008 housing crisis. Right. You know that's when they bought, right? Because mm-hmm. people were selling off. Whereas the middle class, however, they were very afraid, they made emotional decisions, and they they sold off, right? And so, as a result, the next time that the policies change or whatever have you, investors get more confident. Those stocks start to appreciate. But that's something that you can't really blame people for not knowing. You know, and so because of that, I look at that and I think specifically, how does that affect our people? Um, that's not to say that, you know, if, if we would have bought stocks in 2008, then every black person would be a millionaire. I'm not saying that. Right. But I do think that it does speak to a problem um, within our community um, that we need to brush up a little bit more. We need to know a lot more about what's going on with our finances. Um, and it doesn't have to be the, you know, huge quantitative or, uh, you know, quantum analytics, you know, charts and graphs and, you know, technical analysis. It doesn't have to be that, but it can be much on much simpler terms. Right, and, and I feel that, especially within the black community, with, especially with social media, it's very interesting, because like you said, it a lot of people sometimes can't separate so, take take too seriously, right? And it does get to a point where some people do uh, start to resonate from certain things and take it in real life. But a big portion of it is part of groupthink. And one of the elements of groupthink is over-representation. And also, from a research perspective, when you do research, there's one thing called like reliability and validity. All right. And it's something to confirm your results. And one aspect of that is participant observation. And I feel that's so lacking, lacking on so many different divisional stuff within the black community. People haven't actually, partic- actually experienced it themselves. They see somebody talking about it. They may harbor some emotions or feeling towards it. They naturally agree with it, get thousands, thousands of retweets, and people think, well, oh, see, you got thousands of retweets. It must be right. Or representation. That's not true at all. Again, that's from a, a small proportionate aspect, but people can't separate those things. And I think that's why people oftentimes get misled. And like you said, from the unity aspect, you know, it's, it's so pivotal because unfortunately, at least on social media, you see this divide, you know, gender divide between black man and black woman. I mean, it's more really a one-sided thing, affair. It's more of, it seems that sometimes black women will blame black men for every issue or problem within the black community. Um, and it's kind of amazing, while at the same time they say that, while still complaining about white supremacy and racism, but don't see how things are correlated in terms of this division aspect. So, um, I, I think we have to stay more alert to that, especially the financial aspect as well. I mean, look, that's money talks. That's where everything comes back down to. All right. And a lot of the hurt and trauma within the black community can root it back to poverty and some aspect of this dis- being disenfranchised. And I think sometimes as well within the black community with finances is that we're very, uh, uh, for example, right, we'll talk about like Black Wall Street, right? 
And we see what happened and how they end up, you know, bombing Tulsa and like that. And people always say, well, see, we tried it. And it's assumed that because something failed before that it can't happen again. We just automatically rule it out. And I think we're holding ourselves back. So, and, so what do you think in the black community moving forward? What are some things that we may be able to capitalize on that we do have going for us or do things in the community that we do sometimes seem to try to focus on? Well, for one thing, just to go back to the point that you made earlier, and I agree with that because when you talked about, you know, retweets influencing people, there is a tweet that came out around, um, I don't know, it was when I had my other account. And what they said was, I think it was, it was attributed, it was a quote that was attributed to Angela Davis, but it was a complete lie. Angela Davis never said it. It was something along the lines of black men wanting to be white men or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And this girl posts this, and, um, I mean, it, it, that tweet, I mean, next thing I knew, they retweeted that, and then I saw it on Instagram, because that's what people want to believe anyway, mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't matter how true or false it is, it's what matters is how does it make me feel. Um, and I think that a lot of our division is so feelings-based, it's not really fact-based. Right? Um, when you think, when you, you know, people want to believe that black men are this boogeyman, right? Right. Um, and that's not by coincidence. Right. That doesn't, that doesn't exist in a vacuum that, that has a source. Um, we talk about it every day. It's the same people. It, it's so ironic. They keep comparing us to, uh, they keep saying that we're so envious of white men. But every time they describe white supremacy, they always talk about how specifically it's affecting us. So, I mean, that, that's what always strikes me is, is ironic in, in that regard. But right. uh, in terms of what you said was, um, you know, what, what are some areas of, of opportunity that, that black people can capitalize on? Um, well, I guess we could think, think in particular. Yeah, I mean, because honestly, like, it asks, and that's why I asked that question, because it seems that within the black community, unfortunately, we have so many, it, it's almost as if, like, what issue isn't as strong as an issue? More than what do we have to necessarily capitalize on? Because <laughs> it's like there's so many issues and things afflicting the black community. It's kind of like, all right, where do we start to first? What's the more, I guess, uh, the easier or most um, realistic issue that we can actually start addressing? Hey, maybe that's a better way to phrase it. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I was thinking, I always believed that we need to have a specific code. But even still, when it comes to us having a specific code, you know, in terms of, you know, let's have a specific understanding of how we view black men, how we view black women, and is it productive to push us forward, right? You can have a view on black women, but if you think that the view on black women is that they're always loud or whatever, or they're always combative or whatever, if you choose to see the worst in what you see in some black women and you generalize that, then okay. And it's the same thing. If you choose to see the worst in black men that you might see... Uh, Dr. Tommy Curry said something about interpartner violence, and I don't want to screw it up, but essentially, you know, um, guys that may have, you know, beat or killed, beat or killed their um, uh, spouses, right, uh, their spouses and stuff like that. And essentially, the actual number of those occurrences relative to the um, actual number of black men is like less than a millionth or something like that. Mm -hmm. But still, what are we characterized as? We're literally characterized as the millions. So that just goes to show automatically that we as a people, um, in large part, 
you know, obviously there are pockets of consciousness and wokeness or whatever you want to call it, but there's a, a, a considerable uh, portion of us as a people that are not on code in terms of how we choose to see each other mm. and how we choose to see the best in black men as a whole and how we choose to see the best in black women as a whole. Mm. So number one, we have to get on code. We have to come to an understanding how are we going to view each other and how is the, how can we work together to make sure that we're moving forward. So me personally, right, um, I am of the belief that it's my responsibility to make sure that when I have a family, I am uh, a, a righteous patriarch, so to speak, right? right? As male head of the house, first line of defense, first line of provision, the teacher, and I have to be the moral standard bearer. Right. And I have to be the most disciplined when it comes to upholding those morals, right? And in doing so, my wife is not going to be beneath me but beside me, right? But I'm going to be kind of running the show as a visionary, so to speak, right? right? And as a team, then we can set the example for the children. And the culture within the home has to be such that it's emphasizing education, which is another thing that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about education, um, obviously in terms of like, you know, the classical arts and things like that, but also the things that are going to lead to uh, black people more and more being creators in the sense of um, producing goods and services that are going to move us forward, you know, in the 21st century, right? So in, in the engineering sphere, in the mathematics sphere, the sciences, things like that, right? right. And the, so once we have, once we're on code, then we can actually figure out how we can work together. But I guess on a microcosmic level, um, I—that's how I, you know, come to conceptualize that. Right, and and it's very important the family dynamic aspect. Now, honestly, I think almost every issue in the black community, some way, somehow, can all be ruled back to the family, and it starts at home. And for myself, especially working within education and working within the black community, primarily inner city black community, I, I see that family, some of the issues are root to that. And you see online, especially on social media. I don't. I never realized how tremendously blessed I was to have the opportunity and family I have. I grew up blessed always in a two-parent household, both my parents, mom and dad, uh, three or siblings in the household. Uh, again, a kind of traditional. My father led. My mom was the uh, nurturer, uh, protector at home. Um, and that dynamic. My mom was a master's degree, but she chose to be a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked, provided for the family, took care of things. I learned just as a young black man, seeing a positive black male figure how to lead, protect, treat women, and all the various things, right? And I see, like, oftentimes on social media, we in the black community, I think, have normalized so much dysfunction and, and, and toxic behavior that we, we, we don't realize there's so many um, repercussions due to this. And, for example, so... Uh, how you vote the statement? So oftentimes you'll see some people on Twitter, right? There'll be some some black men again who will speak negatively on black women. Some, right? And they're clowns, okay? But nonetheless, they do. And people, of course, see those things. And of course, what do the group thinking over representation? And say, yeah, see, that's how black men see black women, right? And I, I saw today uh, a black woman was asking, well, and I see this question a lot. They always say, well, how can how can we as a black man be raised by a black woman and feel that way, right? And Nine or ten times guys are just clowns. But at the same time, there's some type of trauma that is due to that aspect. And we never talk about that in this dynamic because it comes starts back home with family. I think some people are so used to being raised in a certain environment with certain toxic aspects and certain negative qualities, 
but they don't realize that's not how it's supposed to be. And I think, again, as we talk about education as well, it starts back at home as well. In terms of education, you know, we're talking from not necessarily just, you know, uh, like you said, just the classical arts and stuff like that, or just, but also just in terms of learning about your, your own knowledge of self and history and understanding the importance of how education can provide a lot more opportunities. And when people see education, we're not just talking about math and English, stuff like that. We're just talking about learning in general. I mean, some people will be, they get past high school and don't learn anymore. Like, some people don't even want to read a book. I mean, some people want to open these things up. So, as we get into education here, so within the black community, do you feel the black community values education as much as they should? Do you feel that we don't value education as much as we should? Or do you feel that it's kind of, there are other factors that are hindering us from having that full appreciation? Well, I certainly think that we value education. Um, I think that in some senses we may value a degree over an education. Mm. Um, And by that I mean, I think a lot of times we might, because the purpose of education is to empower, right? And I'm sorry, but if you went to college and you leave out and you're up to your eyeballs in debt and you can't even get the job in the field that you went to, I mean, that you that you concentrated in, I'm a little bit worried, you know, in terms of our emphasis on making sure that we're just pursuing passion in college, right? Right. So I think that a lot of times we might conflate the two. Um, and I think that the conflation of the two can really uh, compromise our ability to actually empower ourselves through actual education, right? And that's, I don't want to you know, start to shit on anybody's business. That's not what I'm trying to do. Because at the end of the day, let me just say this first and foremost, right? So, you know, I went to, I didn't have to really worry about this because I had a full scholarship undergrad, right? So I was like a history major, right? History majors don't make that much money unless they go to law school. That's just a fact, mm-hmm. right? That's something I didn't really, and I'm speaking from experience, right? So then after that, what did I do? I went to grad school, got my degree in, or master's in diplomacy, right? Mm-hmm. What I'm doing today has absolutely nothing to do with either of those topics. It, it really doesn't, right. right? But at the same time, I kind of was able to, you know, just off the muscle, just try to get my way into the, the industry that I'm in. Right, but that's not the same thing for everybody. I'm not trying to make myself seem like a special case, but there are such things as, as exceptions to the rule. Sometimes people just get lucky. Right. And so because of that, I, I try to emphasize to people, listen, education is what matters the most. And so while I think you posted this earlier today, I 3,000% agree, we need doctors, we need lawyers, we need engineers, you know, and these are fields that require college education, 100%. But what I do fear, on the other hand, for people that aren't going into those uh, high-demand fields, um, is that they might be stifling their own potential mm-hmm. and actually crippling themselves instead of empowering themselves, thinking that they're pursuing education when really they're just pursuing interest. Right. And what? And, and you know what else is building up interest? That goddamn student loan. That's a fact. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I, I, I hate to say that because it really... It offends people, but I'm, I'm just trying to be real. I'm trying to just tell people lessons that I had to learn from mistakes that I had to make because I was hard-headed myself. Right, and, and I think, again, a lot of it sometimes comes down to each individual person and how you how you use your own education or use access to it. Because 
I had a similar sense. For example, I in undergrad, um, I was a business management political science major. Initially, I had planned a law school at an undergrad. I came home. In the meantime, I needed a job. I start working as a substitute teacher. I had experience, previous experience working as an educator. So I was like, all right, I'll do this in the meantime. Again, I was a business major, political science major. Now I'm substitute teaching. Then I get into grad school. Get my master's in organizational leadership. So now I'm moving forward to into another endeavor, right? And so for some people, again, it's all about perception, right? So for some people, they may see my thing, well, oh, because I major in poli science business management and I'm not directly working in that because I'm not working directly in that field, I got scammed, right? At the same time, to be a substitute teacher, you need a bachelor's degree. So for myself, you know, I didn't major in education, right? I got a bachelor's degree, which allowed me to get the job as a substitute teacher, which while I was working, allowed me to do grad school and like that, was real flexible schedule and everything, and move forward to it. So I think at times, it depends on what you're trying to go into. But that's why I always stress to people as well, again, and I say with a master's degree, you don't need college degree to be successful. Okay. Mm-hmm. Trade school, certification, being an entrepreneur, having your mind focused towards something. That's what it comes down to. But you got to be doing nothing. Okay. You have to be Absolutely. doing focused towards something. And mm-hmm. I do think that we put a lot of emphasis on it. But within the black community, because we do lack, as I mentioned, you know, we, we, in a lot of these professional careers, a lot of times there's a, a cultural representation is very important. Okay. Going to ask a lot of people, how many people have gone to a black doctor and your, your doctor is black? How many people have gone to, you know, uh, uh, go to a black accountant to get their, their taxes done? How many people have seen a black lawyers, I mean, black doctors? I mean, these are things that do resonate with, right? And mm-hmm. not to jump too far, but at the same time, you think about President Obama, right? Regardless how you feel about him, right? One of the biggest things, and I always say this, I mean, I'm a critical about, right? But in the day when the biggest thing Obama did was show that young black kids, you could be a president. You could actually yep. see a black man, and you yourself could actually see that. So it's, a, it's the representation. Yep. And I'm not all for this whole symbolic victory and all that other symbol- symbolism stuff normally, right? But for certain instances, in terms of professional aspect and that exposure, it is important. So Absolutely. I think we just had to focus on where we put the energy. Like, yo, we need black plumbers. We need black electricians. You know what I'm saying? We need black HVAC Absolutely. people. Those things are important as well. We need to show people that these are black professionals, black people holding some type of, you know, um, having a goal and achieving it. But like you said, I think people mush up that education and that degree and and societal pressures and some people do get degrees just to sick of having a degree and then now you're like you said you're in debt you don't have a job in that career you didn't really have a passion to go do this in the first place yeah that wasn't probably the best choice for you <laughs> yeah um, and it's like i call it the, the, the and i think a lot of this comes as well with the academic bourgeoisie that's what i used to call it mm. right and i call it the academic bourgeoisie because i remember the one time there was this girl right and uh, i went to Seton hall and there was this girl and um she, uh, she kind of reminds me of uh, what's the singer, the singer Lizzo, right? <laughs> you know what I mean by that, right? <laughs> and um, you know, but you know, cute face, or whatever. I guess there was this guy, right? And she was like really bragging on Facebook about how she really hammered into this guy. This guy was like, "Oh, excuse me, miss, can I talk to you right quick?" You know, trying to you know get out or whatever. Right. And then she starts asking questions like, uh, "Do you have a college degree?" And he was like. Nah, he's like, my fault, you know, whatever. So, you know, just saying shit like she just said that to him straight up. And she was like, okay, then no thank you, right? And like, just, and I guess, you know, and girls is like, yes, and shit like that. Right, so right, right. A degree, a degree, regardless of however hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt it represents, right. a degree has become a status symbol. And I think that a lot of people 
when they should be pursuing education that empowers them, they tend to, and this is going along with what you're saying, they tend to um, use it as a status symbol. I mean, in terms, I mean, hey, listen, a degree can a lot of times wind up being a symbolic victory. Right. To be perfectly honest with you. Right. You know, I'm the first person in my family to get this degree. Right, right, right. And you're like, yes, and you're also the first person to be $130,000 in debt. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, right, right. So it's like a catch-22. <laughs> so I just want to make sure that, because it's like, I'm sorry, we ain't enough debt. I'm tired of sitting in meetings where, you know, we're trying to reach out to black um, people and, and or specifically, you know, black professionals, and we got to go over, well, this is what the net worth is in D.C. of, of the average black person. It's over here, $11 and, and, you know, 35 cents. You know what I mean? I'm tired of hearing that. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say it's all a bunch of student loans, right? It's also things like mortgages, which they consider, quote-unquote, good debt, right? It's other things, but I'm just saying, that's another example, you know what I mean? And, and so uh, it's become a status of what people might feel especially um, motivated, uh, or incentivized, maybe on the wrong premises, right? To be uh, to get these degrees, to go to college. But really, it's like think about: it. Do you really want to go to college? You know, what do you want to do there? I don't know. You know, I want to major in gym. No, that's not how that works. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it doesn't work like that. Where you can major in in finger painting, and then you come out and get the dream job that that you know pays you, you know, sixty thousand dollars a year right after grad. It, it doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. Right. And I think people, we have sometimes, again, with, again, there's a lack of participant observation because we don't actually live it ourselves. And especially within the black community, when so many black people are the first generation, you know, people go to college, they don't have a metric to base it off of. They don't have sometimes from mom or dad or, you know, me or, or uncle and aunt, something like that, or brother or sister sometimes in certain occurrences where that path is laid, where they can guide them and tell them, oh, this, this is what you should be doing. It's For a lot of black people, it's a journey all in one with that one person. And Absolutely. And, that, and you said to like that standard of like that degree thing. So I, I live in D.C. now. And when I first got out there, one thing I started seeing, like when you have to talk to people, right, and you go talk to women, oftentimes they ask you, so what do you do? What's your career? And it's like, well, damn, let's go relax. <laughs> like, talk about it. Right. And, and it's something I see, it's like, oh, wow. So like, it's interesting because I, I get it from, you know, because, you know, those things are credibility. They're symbolic gestures. So because I have a college degree, that means I'm supposed to have a, a, a you know, a, a career. I'm supposed to be smarter, supposed to be more money than someone else. That doesn't mean that whatsoever. Someone have a college degree, it would be horrible with their finances. Okay? <laughs> they could be, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. be cheap and poor just like anyone else who doesn't have a college degree but, but knows how to save their money and work with it, right? But, they, again, these are symbolic aspects. And in society, especially for black people, I feel that, you know, again, that's the, the symbolic symbolic aspect that we like to uh, hold on to. So with that being said, in terms of symbolism, right, uh, I see every year for black people, right, I, I think sometimes we have this issue of, uh, of white inclusion and white acceptance, right? So I saw that um, this year, I think the, the Emmys or Oscars won new, some new, sh- um, some award show coming up. And basically I saw that, um, that the documentary on um, the exonerated five or whatever when they see us it wasn't nominated for some award right and people are like oh my gosh they don't want blackness and it's a war stuff right and it's again it's the same thing every year where this we're complaining because a white platform did not recognize our black movie or, or musician or whatever it may be right and it gets to a point in time where you know 
it's kind of like you know are, are we going to create our own or are we going to stay on these platforms so how do you feel that black people we should operate about every time we you know ostracize ostracize white you know what i mean things like that and these these platforms that clearly they aren't necessarily for us do we keep just trying to get on these platforms or do we create our own what do you how do you feel about that well i say hell no for one thing but then i don't think we need to create our own i think we already got our own we need to just use our own, you know, mm-hmm. you know, wipe the dust off what we already got, you know what I mean, it's plenty, but the thing is, and this, you'll notice this, it's like I always, I like to go back to this, right, um, when people talk about Black Wall Street, um, I read this, right, when people go back to Black Wall Street, they think about it, when it was burned down, right, they burned down the building, they killed people, you know, burned the place down, took down, and they specifically targeted the institutions, right, so they burned down the banks. Right. They burn down these, all these different things, right? So the people who escaped, I guess these refugees, they come back, and they actually were able to rebuild it, right? They actually were able to rebuild it because they had the human capital already there, and they had the instilled confidence of what they could achieve as a black community, as an all-black community. Great. But what wound up actually, quote-unquote, killing Black Wall Street, I mean, for good, right? Because the, the, the riots just wounded it. You know, near mortally, right? But it didn't kill it. What actually killed it in an economic sense and in the very essence of Black Wall Street, right? In terms of the black buying power, the black dollar, uh, the black on black business, the black sense of, well, I don't even want to say the black sense of community because I can't speak for them in that sense. But certainly from a commercial standpoint, was when eventually America said, listen, we, or black Americans all around the country said, listen, we want the right to take a shit next to a white person. Right. We want the right to eat a Danish uh, in uh, a, a guy's bakery shop right. who probably wears a white hood at night. Right, we want right, that right. right. We demand that right. right. And so because of that, that actually dissolved Ooh. the potency of black on black dollars. And so Ooh. I think about that, and it's like in the same way, if anything is going to kill uh, black art or a black achievement in art, I don't think it's necessarily going to be uh, a lack of white inclusion, a black inclusion in white spaces. But it's going to be black spaces or white spaces being, you know, swallowing up, mm-hmm. right? Because we, in our own institutions, our own things, our own award ceremonies, our own um, uh, areas to, to honor each other, we have not really, I don't think we've really done it well. I mean, listen, we had the Negro League. Um, black owned business. They not own business. There you go, right? Dissolved. Jesse we Rockson. had Black Wall Street, right? Mm-hmm. We got... The, the BDC, well, BDC Award, I don't know, I haven't watched that in years, right? But it used to be lit, you right. remember that? Right, right, right. It right. used to be the bomb, you right, know what right, I mean? Right. And I don't, I don't, but it seems like, I feel like we complain more about that and not, I, I remember some, uh, uh, I, and again, I don't really follow like Beyonce or anything like that, but I, I'm told that you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you know, but if I'm not mistaken, has Beyonce been to the BDC Awards the last few years? Shit, bro, I can't. Can't tell you that, but I don't. I don't. I don't recall. I. I, I don't. Okay. I don't recall her being there. And that's the thing. It's like these hmm. these people, you know, okay. folks get Hollywood, and all of a sudden it's like you know. But that's the whole thing. I remember um, on Side of Prince's album, uh, Kanye had a verse where he was talking about bragging about how he was the only black person in his neighborhood. It's like, well, okay, congrats on that. You know right. what I mean? But it's a badge of honor once we get away from all black spaces. Hmm. It's a sense of validation when we've been embraced by white spaces mm-hmm. and that's the issue and that if anything that's what's going to kill black achievement in art if anything that's what's going to kill black commerce mm-hmm. you know 
and the and disgust with our stuff. Right, and and I think it's very true. And like you kind of mentioned before, and you know that's why I always have time, sometimes have mixed feelings when we look back at even with integration, right? Although you know I will say that you know I think black people, white people as human individuals, right, should definitely have the same social econ- economic condition, the same access to resources, right? We shouldn't be separated from you know I can't go to the same water fountain as you. Okay, that stuff like that again. We should definitely have equality from that standpoint, right? At the same time. I can also make the argument that how it went down integration is one of the worst things that happened to black people economically because you saw a collapse of so many black owned businesses and that the importance and value of black dollar to black dollar because we were fighting so much for that inclusion and in, in trying to have that space there it kind of took away from it and like the negro leagues right when jackie robinson we always you know applaud and talk about that story of jackie robinson integrating baseball we never talk about how that led to the, the, the fall of the negro leagues <laughs> Uh, and there's so many different endeavors as we kind of move move forward and like you said rappers and people talking about being that the first only black on such such block and that's why part of me okay so to divert here a little bit I feel like sometimes in today's society even with interracial marriage right interracial dating in the black community right so uh, I have a very interesting perspective about this because it's weird because I have a bias because it's weird. Like my my brothers and sisters all date interracially. It's weird, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. both my parents are like pro black. Went to HBC, HBCUs. Like like dad's a Q, mom's a Delta. Uh, like like I'm yeah. I'm only the black one, right? I'm all for black people. I have black kids. Black, 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 black. Okay, but I see sometimes right in terms of when certain people date outside of their race, they're doing this, and it's only the people I hate when who date outside of race and then brag about it, who think they're doing something better right and again I think subconsciously because they are with white people and I'm not trying to say it's from any type of supremacist aspect right but they think that they due to white supremacy that they think that they are, are better I'm a better standard that's why it's also double standard I see right when a, a black man if he takes a white woman right he, he's chastised oh look at this salad this coon blah blah right but if a black woman dates a white man then it's yes we see you you see Rihanna Serena Williams stuff right and again I think for that aspect it's subconsciously the black woman being with the white man and societal's power rankings, if you will, the white man's at the top. So they think, well, I'm in the driver's seat. And mm-hmm. I think in those things, they also get chose. And I say choosing yeah. the two date white men, opposed to black mm-hmm. men, I think, are choosing to date white women. It's a difference. But mm-hmm. it's a societal, societal double standard. So again, it goes back to that correlation, I think, of white acceptance and white inclusion and, and how we view things. Yeah, and it's it's the the feeling of um, opportunity for social mobility mm-hmm. and economic mobility. You know, it's um, it, I think that miscegenation has been used as a vehicle um, to transport black folks out of that quote unquote black neighborhood into the white neighborhood, right? And so I I, I can speak to this on experience. You know, I don't really like to talk about. Well, I don't mind talking about it, but I don't really go into it as much as I used to just because I saw the effect. I saw that it, it didn't really do the, the good or it didn't bring the awareness in a positive sense or in a productive sense that I would have preferred. It actually wound up getting people angrier at each other, right? But I would talk about this, so um, I got a thing. I uh, would always date African women, right? Mm-hmm. And so one girl I was dating, African girl from Tanzania, and um, <clears throat> this is funny, so... Uh, my real name is Christian, and um, my dad is a preacher, 
and I went to, you know, when I went to college, I had a scholarship it's called the Martin Luther King Scholarship, so that sounds uppity Negro-ish, and it sounds, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and I went to a really preppy high school and stuff like that. And um, I'm saying all this for a reason. I'm not saying this to, you know, to, to be vain or anything. I'm saying this because I was the first black guy she'd ever dated. She'd only dated white guys hmm. before. Interesting. Now, her mother, her mother is a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is a professor at Duke University, mm. a sociology professor. Mm. And when she found out that her daughter was dating me, she was furious. Oh, wow. So she starts, now she's a sociology professor, so she starts to use statistics about black murder, incarceration rates, high school graduation rates, unemployment rates, all these different things, right? I mean, mean, she was going in. And then she started to tell, oh, but mom, his name is Christian, he's, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. his dad's a preacher, his mom's an educator like you, Mm -hmm. you know, he, you know, uh, he he has a Martin Luther King scholarship, Mm -hmm. you know. Right. Which again, it sounds like, oh, well, maybe he's one of those. He's things, okay. So that kind of right, right, right. Exactly, right? right. But she still didn't like the fact she still wanted her to get back with the white boyfriend that was cheating on her, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she said sometimes you got to look over things, you know, to be a good wife. That's what she called, right? Mm-hmm. Now I say all that because this was taught down to her. Uh, this was brought down to her, and all of her sisters thought the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought they said they looked at being with white men as prizes. So I asked, I said, why do you and your sisters? worship white men so much and she said verbatim she said because they have all the power I lie to you I don't like when I tell these stories I never I don't gas it I don't take one word away I tell it that she said specifically well they have all the power so clearly there's a uh, there's a a hope um, or an expectation of upward uh, social and and economic uh, mobility um and you and obviously, I think we talk about it more so when it comes to black men dating white women because we got people like Malcolm who was you know who was so vocal on that because he could identify with that, right? So we we, we hear about that all the time, right? And I'm saying that because I know when somebody hears this podcast, they say, "Well, what about when black men do that?" Well, we talk about that every single day. Now we want to talk about something else, right? You know, so it, it, we want to say that it's on both sides. Right, and it's just to say that no, oh, y'all are just as bad as us. But it's just to say that white supremacy is having um, uh, a psychological effect on us very heavily on both of us. And the quicker we can realize that it is not just a black man problem and a, or a black woman problem, the, the quicker we can actually come together and fix the fucking thing. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Right. And, and that's important, right? Because again, we can play a blame game all day, right? We can. Again, they right. Nobody's perfect, right? Uh, as a black man, I can say 100%. There are black men out there who need to step it up, all right? For sure. I think as a society, with black men, we should support our black women even more as possible. We have to protect them. Like, we have to be there for them, 100%, right? And at the same time, for black women, we understand as well that a lot of black men are facing so many different issues and pressure and societal aspects are holding us back. We're not necessarily choosing intentionally not to be there at times. Nonetheless, though, right? These are things that we need to improve on. I mean, there's a lot of toxicness within the black community for black women and black men and again we will only focus on one side you know there's dualities light, light and day hot and cold right there's always two sides to every coin and those are things we just don't put together so when we talk about power and influence right a lot of times that correlate to um, you know especially with politics right and politicians and having that power influence so the transition here in the black community right you see right here there's growing trend there's more black people obviously this election year and everything like that 
um, you know, for years, you know, black people always historically voted Democrat and stuff. And it seems nowadays more people are, from a political perspective, you know, just seeing that, hmm, you know, for myself, right, I can say growing up, right, for myself, I always thought growing up the Republicans were racist and they were, the, you know, the ones that hated black people and Democrats were the, were gang gang, you know what I'm saying? And then I got older and realized, oh, wow, Democrats have done the same kind of detrimental policies, right? Now, I'm kind of this more independent perspective where I'm not on this whole leave the Democrat plantation because Republican is just another plantation itself. Okay, so I'm not on a whole wave. So, at least for black people, what do you feel from a political perspective? Do you think black people own any party loyalty? Do you think black people, how should we, how should we use our vote? Um, I think trying to go, uh, this is the thing, this is what I struggle with when I'm thinking about this question because um, it's trying to get... Uh, the majority of black people to make a dramatic shift in their political paradigm is kind of like herding cats. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? So it's like, it's, it's difficult to think about. But I'll tell you what, so I give my little personal um, understanding of the political sphere um, and the history of such. Um, and then I'll, I'll go into that question. So, like, actually, for me, it was the exact opposite, right? So um, I'm in a house that is. You know, or I come from a house rather that was staunchly, staunchly Republican, mm. um, and it's only on three issues really, right? My parents being evangelical ministers. Me, from a religious perspective, I'm, I'm almost like agnostic. I don't really, you know, but my parents are staunchly very, very, very religious, mm-hmm. um, and so they would base their political opinions off of three things, and you can guess what: abortion, gay marriage, and then uh, Israel. Right, okay. whoever gives more money to Israel, whoever promotes you know expansionism in Israel, that kind of thing, right? Because their idea is once Israel takes over all of Palestine, then Jesus is going to come back, and you know all that that fairy tale stuff, right? right? So they would base everything off that. So when I was younger, obviously I didn't. Well, I don't want to say obviously because there's some people who had you know were able to question these things at a young age or a younger age. But me, I just said, okay, all right, I guess I'm Republican, right? right. Then after a while, when I get to high school, I, I I start to entertain things on the Democratic side, right? And this was around the time that uh, Barack Obama was about to run for office. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, hold it now, maybe there's something that's all Democrat thing, because I want the black man to win. Right. Right? I mean, hey, listen, if the Republicans would have got Colin Powell, right. then, hey, he yeah. would have had my vote. Right, 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 right. right, right, right. Guy. I don't mind saying that. Right. Know? The Irish voted for uh, Kennedy, so, right. you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so I start to see their side of it, right? And I start to understand, okay, this is where they're coming from, so on and so forth. Um, but then I would say, and then that, that followed along through part of the ways through college, right? Now, in college... What wound up happening was I got heavily, heavily, heavily into activism after one of my friends got killed, and then I started to march with the New Black Panther Party and the People's Organization for Progress, and they was kind of like, well, fuck the Democrats, too. I was like, oh, what you mean? <laughs> and, and then they start, you know what I'm saying? Like, hey, I mean, he told me straight up. His name was Brother Bashir. He told me straight up, you know, along those lines. And, you know, what, what I learned from that, right, and, and and I was, I was that guy that was out there on campus. You know, you know how it is on campus where you got the activists, they got the activist circle, mm-hmm. you know, and they the ones with the mega. I was mm-hmm. that guy. The I was going all that you stuff. Know, mm-hmm. Absolutely. That was me, 100%. Especially when they killed Trayvon. Oh, yeah. You know, that was me, right? So I understood that. 
But at the same time, I started to develop what I believe was a very healthy skepticism of both sides. And then I'll, I'll end it with this, right? So what wound up happening when I uh, had graduated from undergrad, I wound up going to grad school for uh, diplomacy and international relations. And whilst I was pursuing that degree, um, I won the favor of an elected, elected official. Um, I guess I kind of won him over because I did something dramatic, right? I just I walked up to him and told him that I wanted to work for him. He was really impressed by that. We wound up getting breakfast, we had lunch, we hung out a couple of times, and I gave him his good graces. The plan was for me to follow in his footsteps and, you know, see where that went, right? Um, but as I got more and more entrenched or more and more familiar with the Democratic Party, I remember I went to the New Jersey... Um, I went to the New Jersey New Jersey Democrat Committee or something like that. It was in Atlantic City in 2015. Mm-hmm. And it was, I want you to listen to this, right? It's a funny story. So at this point, I'm not working for the congressman, but he and I are on good terms where, like, you know, I'll, I, I don't really think I can say, but, you know, I, you know, run an errand, so to speak. And um, what wound up happening, I worked for the uh, African American Chamber of Commerce of New Jersey. Okay. Um, my uh, godfather, John Harmon is the president. And so he said, I want you to go there and network, right? Mm-hmm. Now, me, I still got activist blood in me. I still have an activist spirit. So I don't really know anything about poise or diplomacy. So they had a, um, what's it called? Uh, a panel discussion with a bunch of elected officials. And um, the time came for me to ask a question. And I said, okay, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I work for the African American Chamber of Commerce in New Jersey. Um, I do not get paid uh, to be partisan. I do not get paid to be democratic. And when I say that, I hear the crowd go, like, oh, oh, my God. I said, you know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. right. And I said, uh, I have to ask y'all a question. I said, what can we do to get you guys to support us? Because it seems like you guys already know that we're going to vote for you. And... It's so difficult to get you guys to come to an event, let alone pick up the phone. Mm. So what can I do? What can I do to get you guys to to, to come on board with what the Chamber is trying to do, which is to foster and and cultivate and encourage and spur on black entrepreneurship in the state of New Jersey? What can I do? I said it just like that. So when I said it just like that, the whole panel got quiet. And... One elected official, a black woman, she used to work for Governor James McGreevy. Um, she literally, like dramatically, I guess trying to be funny, you know, moved away from the microphone. The audience starts laughing. And what winds up happening is they don't have any answers, right? They said something to me. They tried to lecture me on how, you know, if I want to support black business, instead of going to Walmart, I should go to a mom and pop shop or something like that. Mm-hmm. Really insulting type shit, right? right? And so what wound up happening was there were some people in the audience who were intrigued by, you know, I was only with maybe 22 or 23 at the time, and I guess they were intrigued by my uh, candor. Mm-hmm. So they came up to me, an assembly woman said, you know, you should really run. I said, I would never run for this party. She <laughs> said, why not? I said, you saw what just happened. Right. right. So it's like, what I learned from that, right? And from then on, I said, I will never have any sort of blind allegiance to any party at all whatsoever. Um, if they don't have what I believe is a good, productive black agenda, point blank period, they're not getting my vote. That's all there is to it. Which means, in the 2016 election, if I voted for Gary Johnson, 
the libertarian guy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The, the one that didn't even remember what Wh- I forgot what it was. I please? don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot what it was. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That one, if, if, if you don't, if you think that that's giving a vote to Donald Trump or to Hillary Clinton, whichever, that means nothing to me because at the end of the day, neither one of them is saying anything that's specifically or particularly, you know, getting my attention. You know, it's just right. not, it's not working for me. If I'm not impressed, you don't get my vote. It's as simple as that. But I'm not giving you my vote just because you think that because I'm black, you know, you it, it's your birthright. Right, and, and I actually touched on that on a previous podcast. I was saying with black people, at times where we see there is sometimes this a black politician, right? That sometimes we're like, especially with you know Camilla Harris and her dropping out, right? And recently, everybody gave all the excuses in the world of why you know racism, uh-huh. sexism, X, Y, and Z, right? And we can't uh-huh. put the fact that sometimes people just have weak candidacies. Okay, that happens sometimes, and it's like the the blue checks, of course, on social media and Twitter, were saying, oh, we're black people, we had to support her, right? And it's like, all right, well, if that's the case, then how come we don't support Herman Cain and Ben Carson? They're black, right? Oh. I mean, they're, they're candidates, right? But but uh-huh. no, you didn't agree with their policies, so you didn't want to vote for them. But how can how come that can't be the case here? You know, and uh-huh. and it's so interesting on how we get caught in that dynamic, and especially for black people, we have to look at it at some point and realize, you know, again, we've been voting for, you know, the same people over and over again, right? And mm-hmm. nothing changes. And I and I said this right. If you go to a, a person right who's who's a Democrat and ask them what are what are five things the Democratic Party has done to help Black people, right? Mm-hmm. They'll they'll immediately name you all the negative things Republicans have done. Mm-hmm. Vice versa. Ask a Republican what the Republican Party doesn't help Black people. They'll name you all the negative things Black ne- uh, Democrats have done. But none of them really come together and actually tell you what they have actually done to benefit black people. It's always, well, look what they did. Well, look what they did. And 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 it's so it's so back and forth. And so I personally vote for the black community with our vote. We got to vote as free agents. And look, at times, there may be some Democratic policies that benefit us, right? Same sense. There may be maybe yeah. Republican policies that benefit us. But we got to hold that fucking that vote, man, and a value because oftentimes I feel like we get also this generation, our generation, we get shamed into this whole voting aspect, right? And, you know, if you don't vote, you're, you're letting out your ancestors, right? And how I always interpreted it was our ancestors fought and sacrificed for us to have the choice to vote. Absolutely. Not necessarily Absolutely. to have to vote. Because I feel like, even for myself in that past 2016 election, right, I, I see Hillary Clinton no different from Donald Trump. I see she has racist and white supremacist background and history in the same sense of him, right? So, Absolutely. for my thing, it was like, well, my ancestors won't be voting for a racist just to say, say if I voted. No, you know what I'm saying? Like, if I personally don't feel they benefit me, I'm not going to vote for them for the sake of voting. This is the choice they gave me to not have to do that. Um, now, for record 2016 election, I voted for myself. I voted, but for myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but I did, because my mom was she's an older generation. She was all pressured. Ah, you have to vote. Ah, blah, 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 all this stuff. And I'm trying to like, ah, I ain't really fuck with them, but all right. Um, but again, I think sometimes we just have to look into that, and especially from the local election aspect as well. Which I think really is what the black community we should really stay conscious of, because those are the people we need to hold really accountable. I mean, just like the officials, our senators, and you know, congressmen and stuff. Yeah, you know, they they're, they're important, clearly important. But the people who really going to change stuff up, you were seeing on a daily basis. That's your local people. That's your commissioners. That's your that's your you know your your school board. That's the people who just live in that community. And from that aspect, that's when we got to have some type of tangible policy. Have some type of actual. I, I think sometimes we sleep on policies. Policy is how stuff changes. Policy is how things are enacted. Okay, 
Those are things that held black people back, have been policies. The 94 crime bill was a policy. The war on drugs by Reagan was a policy. I mean, these are things that put in place. And and kind of real quick to touch back on total forward and gender division within the black community, how when black men at times get the black feminists sometimes, extreme black feminists will, will, will blame black men for oppressing oppressing black women. It's like, well, what, what policies have black men enacted that specifically negatively ben- uh, are detrimental to black women while benefiting black men. What, what, what are these policies? What are the things that we have pushed that negatively impact negatively impact black women by helping black men? Because because that's how change comes. Remember when they blamed us for Trump getting elected? Oh my gosh, bro! <laughs> I said, damn, how did that happen? <laughs> but any other day, we ain't got no power. Y'all have no power. Right. You got no power. But right. now. It, it was like in uh, it, it was in Alabama when uh, when Doug Jones got elected or something like that. Yeah. And how they ran with it, said, "Yep, yeah. it was." This one I knew it was so messed up because like, black women carried us. It was like, yeah, ninety seven percent of black women voted for him. It was like, but ninety three percent of black men voted for him too. <laughs> it was like, mm-hmm. but then all of a sudden, it was just, yeah, black women carried the job. We did the thing, and it's like, yeah, well, yep. I mean, and at some point, that's why I do feel like even for a political perspective, especially as, as black men, we get attacked from all angles and stuff and everything. I'm not saying that Trump was an option, be necessarily a better option for us or probably a better option for us, but at least from a Democrat standpoint, you got to think about it, like, well, what are you benefiting us? You keep pushing us away. You don't acknowledge us. I mean, and I feel like low key, I feel like black women are getting exploited right now. And, okay, of course. And black women are great, most powerful, intellectual people on this planet, okay? Like, all for black women. But you have to understand the white people are using y'all as well. Black women have always been great. This ain't nothing changed. This is popular. Also, black women are great, and everybody's like, oh, wow, where'd they come from? Like, uh-huh. but that's how they're treating this. They don't see this. Getting, this yeah. is exploitation, man. They don't see this. Absolutely. And so. And it's, it's so crazy because I, I've said this a long time ago that as powerful as black women are, their feelings, and, and, they, and they still suffer, as do black men in other ways, but black women suffer from certain insecurities. Mm-hmm. Because of the way they've been treated, right? Because of the way they've been lowly prioritized, right? When it comes to things like intelligence, beauty, domesticity, uh, or femininity, whatever, right? right? They've always been put on the bottom rung of things, and so because of, and and for those black men that may have succumbed to those negative stigmas and stereotypes concerning black women, they certainly did not help, right? right? And so because of that, black women's emotions and insecurities have been con- have become one of the most lucrative. Uh, commodities, mm-hmm. right, for um, anybody non-black, not just white people, because the Latinos, they, they do it too, right. right? They claim this this solidarity with black women, and they actually have convinced some, some black women, right, because I choose to see the best in us, right? right. They have convinced some black, black, black women that they actually have more in common with them than black counterparts. Mm. And that makes absolutely, in any other situation, that would make absolutely no, no logical sense. sense. Right. But again, we're not dealing with logic. We're dealing with nope. insecurities and, and feelings, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's not to make it seem like somebody is like a wimp or like they're ir- completely irrational, but everybody, they have a, they have a trigger point. Mm-hmm. They have, people have feelings and emotions. And black women have been dealt a very, very, very harsh blow. Um, to their self-esteem so that they get really gassed. And you remember a couple of years ago, um, maybe it was it, it's like people used to be laying on the floor and they would say the floor is something, something, Always, right? Right, 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 right. And there was this white boy, he mm-hmm. said the floor oh, is black, black women. women. Oh, and everybody went crazy on that. I almost 
grew up and shat on myself. <laughs> I was so disgusted. Right, I was like, right, right, right. And I mean, it was like, oh my God. Right. Like, oh, well, these black men don't mm-hmm. want us. I'm like, there are all them niggas in your DMs, and you mean to say, like, come on, don't do that. Right. Like, I, I can't stand it, yo. Like, uh, why why is it that when you are a white man's experiment, you take that as more of a compliment than when a black man calls you a queen? That's what bothers me. But my point is, that's not the point of black, but that's just to go to show the condition. Mm-hmm. Right? Black men, we have our own condition, right. right? But this is a condition that black women, some women, many black women are in right now, right. mentally, psychologically, emotionally. Right. So, as we move forward here, we're going to try to wrap some things up here. What are some of your final thoughts just with the black community? How can the black men and black women, how can we try to heal within the community? What are some things that we can do to try to, uh, to grow and, and have that more uh, unification? You know what? I like the idea of as much as extreme black feminists, right, because I, I choose to see them as an outlier, right? Because I promise you, I don't see these motherfuckers in, in everyday life. I never, I only see them on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. So I choose to believe that they're the fringe. I choose to, right? right? But as much as they try to push the narrative, right, that they want these, like, soft, pansy, pussified, feminized black men and they feel more comfortable in a relationship with them, I don't believe that shit. I really don't. I really don't. And if that is true, they're just going to get bored with them. So in terms of how black men act, I think we need to embrace our masculinity even more. Right? I believe that uh, we have to band together, number one, as brothers, almost as a fraternal order, as a guild of some sorts, right? And harnessing our masculinity in a sense that is not directing the violence toward each other, but if necessary, using strategic force against people that would offend or uh, harm our black women. Mm. The point is, when a black woman is walking down the street and she walks past um, a group of black dudes sitting on the stoop, she should feel more confident. And listen, we can't do all that at once. That That can't happen, right? But it starts with one click of black dudes. One... One to three dudes, like, yo, I remember one time, this happened in 2016, right? And um, there was these girls, me and my boys had just gotten out of this club. And um, there were these uh, girls, and black girls, and they were being, I guess, harassed or whatever. And one of them was about to fight a dude. I'm like, well, obviously, I can't let that happen. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I guess in some sense, I'm sort of like, I don't want to, uh, the leader of my circle, right? So immediately I walk on and say, all right, let's get in the middle of this, right? So it wound up turning into a thing, and I won't go deep into that, but the point is, we walked the girls back home after that, and what I was saying to them was, I said, uh, to my guys after that, I said, this is how black women need to, it obviously we shouldn't have to lead to this, but if it does come to that, they should feel like there's a black man that's going to be there, a group of him, right? Uh, a sort of, uh, I don't want to say vigilante task force, but certainly a defense force, specifically um, with, a, with a very militant sentiment, right, that can protect the women and children in our neighborhood. That's the only way this is going to happen, because at the end of the day, when somebody comes, when an invader comes to rape and pillage a village, right, the people that they consider to be vulnerable are the women and children. Mm-hmm. That's why they try to get the black men out of the way mm-hmm. first. So if black women feel vulnerable, that's because they feel like you are not a defense to them. Mm-hmm. And that has to mean something. Mm-hmm. We have to harness... You know, I am not, I'm an emotional person, right? But I'm not a soft person. I believe in strength. I believe in force. I believe that there's a time for violence. I, I truly believe that with all my heart. Right. 
And so because of that, if, if ever there was a more righteous cause, it would be specifically as black men to protect black women. And I think when we do that, we will win over much of the trust that has been lost. Because what black women go through is also, obviously it's the result of a direct offense from white supremacy, but it's also indirectly because of what white supremacy has done to us. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when the men, when the men are the leaders, mm-hmm. you know? When, when, when things happen to us, it indirectly negatively affects the women that are counting on us to provide and protect for them. Right. And I truly believe that, um, and it affects the children. So as much as we know that there's blame to be put on both sides, I think after some, to some extent, we're going to have to take on more responsibility than maybe we technically need to, because that's just what leaders tend to do. Right. So I think that's one thing. And then in doing so, we'll take on a lot of those alpha qualities that we claim to have, mm. or that we claim that black men should have, which I truly believe we do. And I think we really do believe we should have that. Right. And, and I think it's very pivotal, because when you think about this from a historic standpoint, and any time there's been war throughout human history and stuff, the first thing they've done is get the men. Because if you take the men out, men are there to protect. And then it's just women and children. And, you know, again, even go back to slavery, that's one subconscious aspect and everything, the psychological trauma and everything was emasculating the men in front of the black women to show them that black women, you can't rely on these men. Um, and then that stuff sticks in DNA. That stuff happens over time. And it's still happening now in today's society. It's just so strategically and systematic that they use the white man can just sit around and watch black women attack black men all day or black men, you know, attack black women and just pick their feet up and just kill, chill. chill. They don't got to do anything. I mean, we're doing it ourselves. So it's almost war amongst ourselves, a civil war in a sense. And in terms of once we understand that and have that more unification, and like you said, for the black men to show the black women we are actually here and we, we do have y'all back. We are fighting for y'all. Um, and once we, we get past those things, because I like to think at the same time, those people who are extremists are anomalies. Those people are the few 1% on outliers. And that's yeah. not truly how it really is. And in real life society, that's not really how it is. In real life, that's not, you don't see that division as much in real life as you do see on social media and those various I things. I promise I've never seen people in real life. Right. And that's one thing, again, it goes back to overrepresentation. That's why I think it, they, they get on these social media platforms and they say these things, because that's the only time they're going to say it. That's the only time anyone's going to agree with them. That's the only time they're going to feel empowered about these, saying these ridiculous, divisive things. Because in real life, ain't no one playing with that. <laughs> ain't no one going to That's not going to tolerate. So it's very dope. Well, man, this was a very, very good conversation, man. Definitely keep chopping up for hours. <laughs> um, and definitely going to have you back on here again sometime soon, man. So we definitely got a part two to this. Um, so just in general, where can people find you? Where can we, where can, where can we, we find you on social media, website? Where can we get your music? Where can we do all that? Um, let me see. Well... You can follow me on Twitter because I need to get my damn followers back. Um, actual Braxton, that's uh, A C T U A L B R A X T O N. Uh, actual Braxton. Um, that's me on Twitter as well as Instagram. On my page is going to be a link. Um, Our Shalem is on all major streaming sites, all major streaming platforms. Please check it out. I put a lot into it. As you know, I put a lot of emotion into it. Literally, I put tears into it. I put a lot of my mind into it. A lot of things, a lot of experience are going into these five songs. I really think you'll enjoy it if you check it out. Um, and then next year, we're going to have uh, another project. It's going to be a big one, too. So we're going to hit the studio tomorrow. All right, cool, cool, cool. Appreciate it, man. Well, again, thank you again for coming on the show today, man. Definitely a very dope, yeah. unique perspective and everything. And definitely keep growing from there. Hey, thank you, man. Appreciate you, brother. No doubt. Well, as soon, everybody, make sure you stay tuned, stay hip, stay connected.